Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and, I, and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Your, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and, and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your, right, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me, or, and, and the light about me is be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eye saw me, my uniform, unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet, there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sands. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemy takes your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And, and see there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Let's pray. Merciful Father, creator of the universe, sovereign over all things. Lord, you are righteous. You are holy. You are a banner. You go out before us. Lord, you are a healer. You are a provider. You are our God. Lord, there's nothing in our lives, nothing in the life of this world that shocks or surprises you. Lord, for you know all things. Lord, I pray today, Lord, with all the, the stuffs going on in this country, Lord, that we are reminded, Lord, that you know our inward parts, that you've knit us together, that we were made in your image, even from conception. And Father, also, you remind us in this psalm, Lord, that the world does hate you. And Lord, the Lord will the world will hate us on account of you. Father, I that you grant us mercy today. Lord, did you grant us grace? 
Father, as we worship today, Lord, as we bring our offering before you, let it be acceptable. Lord, we're thankful for all that you've done. It's in your name. Amen. All right. So I have a, a small confession to make here that when pastor called me last night, he didn't really give me a direction about what he wanted me to teach on. So I elected to go with my most favorite chapter out of the Bible, which just so happens to coincide with right where chapter where, where pastor left off. Um, and so, um, my prayer last night was that God removed me from the equation because there are certain things that I get more excited about than teaching about others. Right. And in this case, justification and sanctification are two of the things that are most near and dear to me that I like teaching on, especially in a culture here in America that kind of convolutes the two a little bit. And I hope to bring some clarity there. We'll, we'll see. Or I may just muddy the waters entirely. We'll see. So, um, when we think about to whom Paul was talking in Romans 7, <coughs> um, the question is, was he talking to Jews who were still under the law? Or was he talking to believers who were now under grace? Because if you're just kind of reading at a cursory glance, you can kind of see both. But one thing I do want us to point out, which is why I think it's the latter is because of where you find Romans seven nestled. It's right in between Romans six and Romans eight, which are the three main chapters about sanctification. It's about that process of being made more Christ-like. If you want to talk about justification, you're looking really at chapters one through five. Right? How do we? How are we justified in Christ? And Paul crafted his letters in such a way that there is no doubt in what he was talking about. And so, as we kind of plow through Romans seven, keep in mind that he is talking to believers. He is talking to those who have already chose. They basically they are following Christ, and now they're trying to figure out how to make sense of their own heart in the process. Okay. Um, I do things a little different than the pastor. I know that he likes to read a verse and then talk about that verse for a while and then read a verse and talk about that verse. I kind of chunk things together. And so I'm going to read through verses one through six and then we'll talk about them and then we'll go to the next section and so on and so forth. So if it's a little different, I apologize. It's just what I know how to do. <laughs> so starting in Romans seven, verse one. Oh, one more thing. I read out of the ESV. I apologize. It's not New King James, which you may be used to. And that's why it's also switched up here. I think I did it right on the thing. I, so it should be on ESV, but I think it is. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law, uh, that law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and, she, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. 
Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to an another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we, we serve in a new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So, understand that what they were coming out of, okay? They came out of this covenant of works, right? And this is why they had the sacrifice at the temple all the time, constantly sacrificing, constantly sacrificing. As we've made mention on many occasions, the temple was a very bloody place, okay? Hence, the new one, that's a whole other sermon series, but on why blood was necessary. Just understand that it was for now. And if we, okay, you and me today, continue down this road where by works we are saved, because that's what they were, right? You had to do right things. Okay, you would basically continue under the law basically as its own covenant, the, the covenant of works. Okay, that basically means that you are seeking justification through obedience. Okay, and you unfortunately continue to be a slave to sin. Now, what do I mean by all this? That what we see in, in people's lives today is they want to act right enough for God to accept them. They want to do things right enough so that God will then let me into heaven. And just kind of a, to throw another term out there, this is really a, a Pelagian view that kind of flowed out of the, the third century, second century. And unfor it was deemed a heresy back in 419. But even today, that heresy is still pervasive in the church. Okay. I mean, you'll hear pastors, especially your prosperity pastors, will say things like, well, you don't have enough faith. You just need to have more of this. You need to do this stuff right. Then God will bless you. Then God will, will be happy with you. And, and that's just not reality, folks. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so as we continue to plow through these areas, we're going to talk about those. So what is justification? It's a big $3 word. What is it? Right? It is a legal term. It is being made right before God. What makes what gives me right standing before God? Well, it's not my works. How do I know that? Because it tells me in Isaiah, it tells me in the New Testament also that my works are nothing but filth before God. My righteousness is nothing but filth before God. Think about your best deed that you think you've ever done in your own mind. What's the best thing? Just think about it, right? That, that thing that makes you really proud to be a Christian, right? That thing is still filth when it comes to God. Now, understand that, that that's in a matter of speaking from justification. Okay, we are talking about being made right before God. There is not enough good works that I can do that can make me right before God. Okay, so being justified, what makes me right? Well, the only thing that can make me bridge that gap between an unjustified person to a justified person is Christ. There is nothing else. Well, how do I come to Christ? If you've been in my class, you probably know this a hundred times over. By the will of God, right? John 6, 44. That no man 
comes to me. Jesus talking, right? No man comes to me unless the Father first draws him. John 6, 44. So the only way that we even get to Christ is by God drawing us. And when he draws us, it's effectual. It does what it's supposed to do. And at that moment, when, when God draws us to Christ and there is repentance, what you have is someone who is now justified before God, okay? which means you're a Christian, you're saved, right? Now, what that also means then is now there is another process called sanctification, which is we're going to be in heavily today, okay, talking about that sanctification process all the way through Romans 7. There is nothing else that we have available to us that allows for that sanctification process or justification for that matter. Like, I can't do it on my own. And we think about this from time to time. We think, you know what? I did a pretty good job there, right? You know, I feel good about that. Well, the first thing you've done is you've entered, pride has now entered in into what you've done. Or we tend to go into projects or things where we don't invite God in on the process. Even if we're doing godly things, what we're doing then is we're now we're doing those things in our own strength. When Christ did anything in Scripture that where he had a big event coming, you always see him withdrawing and going into prayer. Anytime a major event was coming up, it was a withdrawal from the people, a moving away to be alone in prayer with God. You, I mean... If you want to show me someone who's got a fantastic prayer life, I'll show you a weak person that knows they need God. And a lot of times we think we're strong. And I, and I promise you we're not as strong as we think we are. <laughs> you know, when we understand what the law was for these guys here, because think about who, what, the, what he's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Jews both who understand what the law was in that process. And so when he's telling them, you know, he compares it to this thing of marriage, right? And so this is something they could understood, they could relate to. He's like, you know, you are bound by law to this one person until the husband dies. But if the husband dies, you are free to marry another. Well, and he, he brings that forward talking about, and then he kind of explains the, just that, that, parable it's not really a parable it's more of an, uh, an example but he explains it saying that we were married to one thing before christ the law right that's what that's what you were being judged by okay pre-christ we're we are bound our will is bound to sin okay before christ but what ends up happening is now when we are when we die to sin right when that when that that old covenant dies we are now in a covenant of grace. Okay, I am free to move on to another person. And Christ is that new person. So we are now moving out of the law and into grace. And it's it, it, people don't know what to do with that, especially in the Old Testament, right? Now, to, I don't even think today we understand what to do with it. Because, well, you mean I don't have to sit and just you know live, all, live rightly according to all these rules? And so I, you can kind of imagine where the wheels are turning on these people. It's like, well, I don't have to do this. I can do whatever I want those type of things. And, and Paul jumps into that, right? Because basically what he's saying is that the law, this thing over here was leading you to death. You were bound to it. And now you are in Christ and no longer bound to the law. And so the thought process is like, well, was the law bad? 
right? That's what they're, I mean, you can, you can kind of see the, these wheels turn. It's like, well, maybe I shouldn't have been involved with that thing. Well, and he goes on. Is it verse five and six? Let me kind of, can you back up to five and six real quick? Five, six. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit and not of the old ways of the written code. Another big $2 word here is mortification. Okay, What we should be about, especially in this process, is putting to death the old ways. And Paul points this out, I think, rightly, because what he's fixing to get into into his letter. There's a, 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 a Scottish reformer by the name of John Knox who wrote a sermon series called The Mortification of Sin and Believers. Um, if you decide you want to read it, don't read his original Old English version. I, I don't even understand the outline that goes with it, by the way. I had to get a, a, a modern English version to even understand it. But... Um, we are to be about putting to death sin in our life because I promise you, and, and this is something that I experienced early on in my Christianity. I would get saved right in my mind. This is kind of how it went. I'd get saved and everything would be good for about a day. I'd feel pretty good. And then I would commit some sin 36 hours later and think, well, you know what? I must not have prayed well enough. I must not be a Christian yet. And so I'd get in my bed again that night and I would pray the same salvation prayer again. But I'd pray it harder this time. I'd squeeze my eyes really tight. I'd really mean it. And then I'd come back a day or two later. More sin. And, and this is what I told my class. I don't know if it was last week or week before last. I think I prayed that salvation prayer probably a hundred times because I just didn't think I was doing it right because there must be some magic words that when I say it right or if I mean it well enough, all of a sudden now, I'm going to be saved, and then I won't sin anymore. But see, that again, a misunderstanding of Scripture on my part. I was young, didn't know any better. Praise God that he gives us understanding as we grow. So moving on into verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, it, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not would have not known what to covet. It, uh, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, the sin dies. I once lived apart from the law, but when the commandment came. Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that I promised that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me that uh, death through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment made be, might become sinful beyond measure. The first worship song that we did tonight, I asked the Lord, right? Kind of parallels this thought that the moment we start asking for strength or grace 
right? It seems that almost immediately things get harder. And it's like, why God? It was already hard enough. I don't need more strength. I needed strength to get through what I was getting through before, right? And the psalmist, or excuse me, the hymnist actually rightly says, this is how I answer, right, prayers for grace and strength, that we have to be wrestled away from our earthly desires, our earthly joys, all of these things that tie us to things that aren't of Christ. This is that, that he, then the last line says that we may seek our all in thee, right? That we want our all to be in Christ, all of our desire, all of our thoughts, all of our wants, everything tied up in Christ. Well, what we see here in Romans 7, 7 through 13, they ask that question. Well, is the law sin, right? Like, because it, it produced within me all of these things that I wasn't supposed to produce, like I'm supposed to be living rightly, but the first thing I do is do the exact opposite. And he talks about covetedness. And I think it's interesting that he chooses that one of all the sins that are out there because mo like when you see the story of, of, of the rich young ruler that's talking to Christ, right? And he Christ, he goes, you know, I want to, you know, how do I do this? He's like, well, you need to, you know, Keep the commandments. Do do all the things that you're supposed to do. And he's like, I've kept all these since I was a boy, right? And so, like, you know, I was able to keep all these commandments. And he said, Now sell all you have and give to the poor, and then come follow me. Well, problem was is that there was a, a, a covetous desire that already lived there. Now I've heard other preachers talking about, and and it's an interesting story, but that basically that he chose not to tithe back then because tithing the way that they did their things was important, and that the amount of of tithe that he didn't give amounted to more than his entire fortune at the time. So basically, he, God was only asking rightly back what already belonged to him anyway. And so, um, but that's neither here nor there. But what we have, though, is this, this a covetedness problem. We want what God hasn't given us. And people will try to use different verses to justify their wants and desires. What do we see in scripture? You don't have because you don't ask. And they will take that right there in a nutshell and say, you don't have what, like the $64 million jet because you didn't ask for it or you didn't believe it well enough. And I'm not joking about that, by the way. There are pastors out there that want private jets because that's what they're supposed to have. But they miss the point. Because if I am in that sanctification process, then the desires of my heart should be what God wants for me. And if he is about resting away all of my earthly desires and things that, that I think I need on this planet, then the things that remain are going to be the things that he wants to remain anyway. So when I'm asking for something, it's the things that he already wants me to ask for anyway. Now, I'm not against wealth. Can you be a wealthy person and have things and still be a Christian? Sure. Okay. And, and so I'm not saying, I don't think God ever intended us for live, live in poverty. I don't. Part of what he has given us here on this planet, number one is we are to you know, fear God and keep his commandments. But he's also put us here to enjoy his creation. And, you know, we spend a lot of time, unfortunately, chasing after the, the, the in the rat maze after all of the, the things of this earth. 
as opposed to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, right? Matthew 6, 33. And when we seek him first, what we end up with is a desire that should flow out of his heart into ours and then back to him. Now, what he points out is, is that there's now a, that sin made alive in me, or excuse me, the law made alive, alive in me, all these desires that I didn't know were there before. I didn't know coveting was wrong. But as soon as I found, or basically says, do not covet, now all of a sudden, I want, right? It tells me to honor my mother and father. Well, then all of a sudden, I have a really hard time honoring my mother and father. Like all of these desires now creep up. So we have this, the flesh, right? This, this thing that we live in, our skin, that has its own wants and desires. And we struggle with knowing what to do with that. Because, and that's what, why I think Paul rightly went in this direction, was saying, well, is the law sin? Well, no, it's not what it's saying. As pastors said on many occasions, it is literally a barometer, right? The law should be telling us that we can't do this. Okay, We can't just lay the Ten Commandments out in our life and say, you know what? I got it. And then live rightly enough to please God. Okay? Again, understand justification, sanctification, right? That... When we are justified, we are justified. I don't need to do any more towards that. Now, if you are not being sanctified, like if you think you've been justified and then choose to live however you want to, and there is never a sanctification process, you're probably not a Christian. And I urge you to repent, turn to Christ, and begin that justification and sanctification process. Okay, how do I know this? Well, the the parable of the sower speaks volumes, right? We know when he, he cast the seed out, some of it fell on the on the on the packed hard ground of the of the pathway, where where the birds came in, basically Satan come in and scooping it up and, and basically keeping them away from believing. Some of it fell among the rocky soil, where the, it sprung up really fast, so it grew roots and it actually looked like it was going to do well, but then it died out after a little time. Some of it was among thorns, right, where the the, the stuff of life choked it out, and so you had of those four areas, three of them put roots in the ground. But only one of them fell on good soil. What that tells me is just because something looks like a Christian in the initial part doesn't mean that's who they are. So this is what we've talked about in our Bible study class is that we, as the body of Christ, have a, has a role in the sanctification process of our local body of believers. Like We are to move forward with them, to come alongside them. Hey, how are, you, how are things going with this? How are things going with that? Whatever... We need to know their lives well enough to be able to have conversations about their sin. And we need to be bold enough to have conversation with about people with about their sin. It's not an easy conversation. I mean, we've got people in our lives that have struggled with things like addiction, right? That have struggled with all kind, all sorts of manner things, right? And have made that aware to the people around them. How often do we go and check on those people to make sure that in those areas that they've confessed that they're still living rightly? How often? And much to my shame, I don't do it enough. Because what should I be about? The way they feel? Or their sanctification? And that's what should be important to us all. 
And, you know, I've, I've had this conversation with my wife several times where I have to, it's, it's apology, but it's more of a mock apology. I, I apologized for telling her I love her too often. Right. I said, I hope you don't get tired of hearing this because I think it's important that we keep going back, keep going back, keep going back and, and reapplying what they already know. Because, you know, if I'm, if I have a sin that I'm struggling with that, you know, I, I need people to, to know about odds are I'm not going to tell them <laughs> because we love our sin. We love having that little hidden area of our heart. We love having sovereignty in those areas. And the part of the problem is, is that when I don't reveal that to the body and nobody's asked me about it, that sin takes hold. It becomes a stronghold inside my heart. It develops roots and it grows. Just like the roots that we talked about with the seeds, right? Sin itself, and it talks about that sin eventually gives birth, right? And that gives birth to death. And so there are people in this world that come along for a while that think they're Christians, but when either things get hard or like I talked about where I sin and I think I'm no longer a Christian and I'll bounce back and forth and eventually fall away. That's, that, that's going to happen. Part of our job as body of believers is like, you know, just we have a lot of people not here today, right? We need to check on people. Not just say, hey, are you sinning? But hey, how are things going? What can I do to help? And there may be nothing going on. But there may be something. Then, so part of our job is to reach out with our body of believers. And I really think that's what is what we're trying to grab a hold of here. So moving on into 14 through 20. This one gets a little tongue-tied and confusing, so I apologize in advance. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh sold under sin for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I do the very things I hate now if I do what I do not want I agree that the law is good so now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for I have the desire to do what is right but do not have the ability to carry it out for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is sanctification, by the way, this right here. If I would have understood this 20 years ago, I don't know that I would have prayed the salvation prayer as many times as I did, is that I am going to struggle. Like Paul himself, who calls himself the chief of sinners, points out that the things I don't want to do, these I keep on doing. Okay, So what he's saying is like, if, if, if it's not, you know, there's this wrestling with sin. And part of the conversations that we've had on Wednesday nights was what we are told with is to contend with sin, right? We are told to wrestle with it, work it out, right? Except in one area, right? In sexual immorality, we're to flee. That is the one area where he says, just get up and run. But when it comes to uh, just regular old sin, we are to wrestle with it. Now, what Paul points out, and I think rightfully, is that we lose that battle a lot of the times. We won't lose it every time. But as we contend with it, 
as we work on that sanctification process, it becomes easier to win that fight and easier to win that fight and easier to win that fight. That's what the mortification of sin is, putting it to death, is winning that fight. Now, you won't win it all the time. And that's why we have First John, right? Chapter 2, that there's an advocate, right? There's one mediator between Christ and man. And if you happen to sin, Christ the advocate will, will, will basically, on your behalf, go before God. So we know we have a safety net. So let's say I struggle with lying. And I want to, and basically when I'm given the opportunity to lie, I have a choice. I can either choose to follow God, right? Or I can choose to follow self. That's all, those are my options. And if I want to lie, then I, I follow this line here. If I want to follow after God and tell the truth, regardless of the circumstances, then this is where I go. That's, that's sanctification process. All of us have areas that we need to work on. None of us are sinless. All of us have within us things that we need to be that need to be sanctified and we're going to get into basically a portion here in a minute where we actually have to understand what it means to be part of that sanctification process um if y'all can just quickly if y'all will turn over to second corinthians chapter 10 i didn't put this in there um but it is one that it's just second corinthians chapter 10 and i'll give y'all just a moment to get there so part of the sanctification process is learning how to have self-control. Okay, that's just part of it. In that process, though, there, there's some little things that we can do. And again, this is still Paul teaching here. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, going to start in verse 4, go through verse 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So nestled right in the middle there is something that we are given instruction on what to do. Take every thought captive. Ruth and I tried this for about a day, by the way. <laughs> That's what we were saying, so, you know, and it wasn't even every thought. We're going to take every major decision that we have in, in the day and hold it captive to Christ. I think we got through, well, not even a whole one. <laughs> and it's, it's not an easy thing to learn how to do. And it's not, definitely not an easy thing to do. But as things come up in your life, decisions that need to be made, um, and, 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 uh, Sometimes you would you won't make the same decision in the same way both times because in that moment Christ may have different things for you. Um, I'll give you an example. Ruth really wanted to be at church today, and she was going to come and sit, and it probably to her detriment, where it was going to hurt her back sitting here for an hour and then having to do all the extra driving that she was going to have to do. And so that decision needed to be for her to stay home today. And it, it's not the decision that she, that's not what she wanted to do. So sometimes the things that, that God has for us is about fighting our own sinful nature. I would say most of the time. And so little things. Now, would God normally want her with the body of believers? Absolutely. Right. But in this instance, it was for her to be at home. Some of us have, you know what? I just don't feel like going to church today, or I don't feel like going to Bible study or whatever. Well, some days, you know what, that's perfectly acceptable. 
Something is not. Okay, again, there, there's that wrestling contending. Um, for example, today, right, is supposed to be a Sabbath rest, right? Would would there be anything wrong with someone resting on a Sunday? No. Now, this is God reorganized the week, all that stuff, so that this is actually the first day of the week now, not the last day of the week. And so it's, it's so let's just, what do we do with that Sabbath rest? We could work. You can go out and have a job. You can move somebody. You can do all, right. But is that person in sin? The answer is no. How do I know? Because what the Bible tells me is, is that man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. The rest that God grants us at the end of the week is because he knows we need rest. And so if we have the, the inability to take it for whatever reason and we have to work, you're not punished for it. And so there's these, this, this concept of how do we make proper decisions? How do we hold every thought captive, every action captive, every decision captive to Christ? That's a process, one that we, we probably won't finish this side of heaven. But what we should be doing is we should be about taking our actions. And the thing is, you know what? Decide for an hour that you're going to do it or a minute, whatever that, that process is, and then grow it. And I, and I promise you that the things that you do in this life will change when we start doing that, that, that sanctification process. Now, what do you do? Let's say, you know what? I don't lie near as much as I used to. I'm pretty good now about not doing that anymore. I promise you something else is coming up. Number one, they don't just go away. Okay? The, the, the desire, even when we beat an area, the desires to, of those don't fall away. Okay? If you struggle with drugs, alcohol, pornography, fornication, whatever, those desires don't simply go away because now, you know what? I've confessed. I've made some right decisions for, you know, a week in a row now. What do I do when those desires pop up one year, two years, three years, 10 years down the road? Are they just all of us, all of them automatically fixed because I made a decision 10 years ago? No, they're not. The battle continues and it will always continue. And we should be about that process every single day. Now, what does Paul point out in Romans 7, especially in that 14 through 20 area? What he points out is the things I don't want to do, these are the things I keep on doing. But what he's saying is that if that is the case, then what we're saying is that it is sin in me doing it. The law is good, and it is sin causing this, right? It basically, it has created, created this, the, all sin wells up in me, and my job is part of that sanctification process of eliminating it through holding every thought captive, through putting to death sin in my life. So let's kind of bring all this together here in the last 15 minutes or so. Um, so we're going to pick up in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I'm going to pause there for just a minute. 
when they laid out this with books and chapters and verses, understand that originally this was just a letter. And I don't like the fact that they've separated Romans 8.1 from Romans 7, that part of the chapter. Okay. Because what Romans 8.1 says is there's now no condemnation. Therefore, right? When you see a therefore, in, especially in Romans, why is that therefore, therefore, right? <laughs> why? Because you need to look back at what he just said. Because we can't win that battle, right? Because there's this battle waging on back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that we will never ultimately win on our own. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Make sense? So what we have is a battle that we can't win. But we also have a battle that he, an ultimate war that he has already won. We have things to do. We have our battles to fight. But he has already won that war over sin. Now our job is just to be sanctified. So moving on into Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things according to the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but of the spirit. If in the fact that the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of, of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So, and this kind of reaches back to what we've been teaching on Wednesday nights a little bit, that especially in verse, uh, where we go here? Verse seven. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. A mind that has not been set free by God cannot do anything other than be hostile towards God. Okay, and This is where we talked about that freedom of the will on Wednesday nights. Prior to God saving us, before he quickens us, my will has one desire. It is bound to sin. It will only do what sinful nature desires for it to do. Now, that may look like good things from time to time, right? That may look like I'm, you know, I'm honoring my mother. I'm honoring my father. But it has my own selfish needs attached to it, I promise. When, when God calls us and we follow in under Christ, okay, now I have a freedom of the will. My will is no longer just bound to sin. 
my will is now bound to Christ, and I can choose to do the sinful things that I was doing, or I can choose to follow God. So now I have freedom of the will. Now, that person that he's talking about in chapter seven or in verse seven can only choose itself. I mean, he, he, he was emphatic. He made its own little section there. Indeed, it cannot. So when we understand what's going on here, that our deliverance cannot come from our own strength. Our deliverance cannot come from anything within our own desires. We don't even want it prior to God calling us. We don't want God. I mean, this is what we saw in Psalm 139 today. That there at the end of the, of, of the psalm, it talked about that there that that we were hostile to God, we are enemies of God. But see, and this is something that we were talking about a little bit this morning on a, on a side note, is that movies today no longer have villains; they either have heroes or they have antiheroes, people that are just bad heroes, right? Well, in reality, we are a villain before God calls us. We are an enemy of God. And we live in a society now where it says that everybody can be redeemed, that everything is okay, that just they just need to do be, be better, right? And we spend a lot of time really focusing in on how can I save everyone as opposed to how can I sanctify myself? Because at the end of the day, this is my responsibility here. This right here, my wife. I mean, those uh, that's my first and second ministry. My third ministry is the ministry to the church, right? But my sanctification and my family's sanctification should be paramount. And if my sanctification is not in order, if I'm not moving in that direction, then what good am I to this body here? Worthless. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be perfectly sinless to be able to minister to the body. It's not what I'm saying. But we have to be about that mortification of sin and the sanctification process to be of any use to God. Because if I'm choosing to live a sinful life while claiming to be a Christian, okay, the truth is not in me. And I'm a liar. And I need to repent. Now, that does not mean that we are going to have just perfection. Okay, If I sin... Again, look at your life in the manner of a movie, not in a snapshot. When you look at your life in the manner of a snapshot, I promise you, you're taking pictures of all the bad things. It's like, wow, I, there's no way I can be a Christian. But if you look at the whole of your life, this is about the, think about the stock market, right? We should be trending upwards. If I'm constantly moving in this direction, even though there's ups and downs in that process, I'm still trending upwards. But if I'm either flatlining or if I'm trending downwards, I need to repent. So what do we do with all this? Let's take all this in a whole. We started off talking about marriage. And in that marriage ceremony, there is a union, right, that exists. From birth, we are tied to that first covenant, covenant of works. The problem is we are born in sin. If I am tied to that, I am married to that until God unmarries me from that, puts me puts that to death in me and marries me to a new husband. This is what we should pray for. Guys, if you don't know if you're saved or not, that is the first thing that you ought to be praying is that, you know, 
marry me to Christ. Get, grant me repentance. Okay. Second Timothy two twenty five tells me the to be gentle with opponents because God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Which means even our ability to repent of our own sin is granted to us by God. It is God who draws. It is God who gives faith. It is God who gives grace. It is God who grants repentance. Why? So that we can boast in nothing. We just sang it that my only boast is in you. We have but one job in this life, and it tells us this in Ecclesiastes to fear God and keep his commandments. Okay? The fear of God comes because he grants us the fear of the Lord. That is justification. Keeping his commandments, not justification, sanctification. Let's pray. Merciful Father, Lord, I pray that you continue to make us holy as you are holy. Father, as we sang today, and as the seraphim cherubim sang and continue to sing, holy, holy, holy. Lord, help us to be more like you. Father, I pray that when sin comes, Lord, that you help us to make right decisions. Lord, that when sin comes, that we recognize it for what it is, Lord. And Father, I do pray that when sin comes, that we can win that battle. But Father, I'm thankful that in the event that we don't, that we have an advocate, that we have a mediator, or that Christ, you are all that more for us. Lord, continue to be our example. Lord, that we may live rightly. Lord, that we may be sanctified, that we may be under, able to understand you more. And Father, for, for us and maybe those that we know or that are around us, Lord, if they don't know you yet, Lord, we do ask that you draw them, Lord, that you grant them repentance, that you grant them mercy. Father, I know that you are just, and Lord, you'd be right to not grant any of us salvation. You'd be right to do so, for we are, we are utterly sinful. But I'm thankful for your grace. Lord, I'm thankful that you did provide a way of salvation. Lord, help us to, to know the path and help us to make sure that we're on the right path. Lord, bless us this week. It's in your name. Amen.